0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It is not uncommon for patients to ask doctors if a new medication has come to market that is therapeutically better and hopefully has fewer side effects. We want to talk about how new medications are developed and tested. Joining us is Andrew Cutler, a psychiatrist and the CEO and medical director of the Florida Clinical Research Center. Dr. Cutler, thank you for being with us. It's really a pleasure, Abby. Because of the size of this topic, we're going to make this into a two-part series. I want to begin with some background information. Once upon a time, medications followed after a discovery that there were some therapeutic effects to different plants. How do we go about it today?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that a lot of our medications were discovered by serendipity. Now it's done in a much more sophisticated way. Obviously, we have a lot more technology. We have computer modeling. I would say that a lot of the current medications are discovered more by design than by accident. We now have the capability with computer technology to screen literally millions of potential drug candidates. Uh, whereas in the old days, of course, we would have to use chemicals and screen, physically screen actual chemical candidates, and now it's all done in simulated modeling and things like that. Sometimes that's done based on, you know, a rationale of a chemical or a known mechanism. Sometimes it's done by taking an existing medicine and tweaking it and playing around with the structure or by coming up with something synthetic that resembles another known medication. So there's a variety of ways, and then once you come up with a candidate, then you go into what's called preclinical testing. And clinical trials basically just mean, clinical means in human beings, so preclinical would be computer modeling, test tubes, and animals, if you will.
0: When they do the computer modeling, can we visualize it this way that we have a sense of the type of receptor that we want the drug to sit on and we build backwards inside the computer?
1: I think that's definitely one way that it's done, yeah, either working backwards from a receptor or from some other known target of drug action. Sometimes, as I said, you work forwards by coming up with a structure that resembles another known drug. Sometimes you work backwards from the biologic target, if you will.
0: So after they've come up with some ideas and they've done some computer testing, they then develop the drug and what do they do? Test it in random rats and dogs or other tissues?
1: Yes. Yeah, typically it is studied in other other animal models, often usually mammals, of course. Various animals are good models for various kinds of testing that they would do. For instance, certain animals are good for modeling cardiovascular safety. Certain animals are used for gestational safety, if you will, birth defects and things like that. And There are certain animal models that can be used to simulate certain types of diseases, particularly certain psychiatric diseases can be studied in animal models.
0: So as complex as our brains are, we still have a model that we can use in animals. That's interesting.
1: of the illnesses. It's interesting that not not all of them and it is of course a very rough approximation if you will and this is one of the reasons clinicians will be interested to hear. This is one of the reasons why very often dosing is also off from clinical trials into the real world. Very often dosing is predicted based on animal models. You know you'll study in a milligram per kilogram and then you'll convert that into humans and as you know uh, animals are not humans. And so this is where some of, the, some of the miscalculations can come into play.
0: One of the fascinating and intriguing qualities of this entire process is that somewhere there is that first person to take that first pill or injection or, or however the medication is gotten into the body. What happens just prior to that first person taking the medication? How do we know it's safe? How do we even have an idea about how much to give them?
1: That's a very important question. And one of the things that's done is when you're looking at animal models, you're not only looking at animal models of the disease you want to study, but you're also giving ever-increasing doses of the medicine to an animal to look at safety. They have also models for toxicity, if you will. So there's ways of trying to determine if there's some evidence of liver toxicity or bone marrow toxicity or cardiac toxicity. And so they they do a lot of animal testing first, and then you're absolutely right. Someone has to be the, the brave human guinea pig, if you will. Then we get into the phases of clinical trials or clinical testing once you cross into humans. And there's four phases that the FDA recognizes. So what we'd be talking about here would be the very beginning of phase one. And phase one is basically safety testing is the most important thing. You first want to make sure you don't hurt anyone and Usually phase one studies are usually done by male college students because they can't get pregnant and they'll do anything for money, basically. <laughs> and what you do, I, I, I joke, and it's really true, what you do is you, you'll give them ever increasing doses of the drug until they puke or pass out. So that's something that's called an MTD or maximum tolerated dose design. You look at safety at that point and you're also looking at pharmacokinetics, which is you're you're looking at how the body metabolizes the drug and this kind of thing.
0: So they'll be taking blood tests and looking at blood levels and whatever other levels they need to look at during these early phases, phase one.
1: These are done in specialized research centers called phase one units or phase one facilities. And people are very closely monitored various parameters such as their vital signs. There'll be intensive cardiac monitoring. There'll be frequent blood drawing. You know, we want to understand better how the drug is metabolized by what part of the body. In other words, is it predominantly liver metabolism? Is it excreted in the urine? You want to understand as much about the pharmacokinetics. In other words, is it a linear pharmacokinetics? What is the half-life? How long does it hang around? That kind of thing.
0: Okay. So if a drug is being developed, which looks as if it might have a benefit for, shall we say, as an antidepressant, do the people in phase one, do these folks have to have a depression in order to go into it? Or is that yet not an issue insofar as the testing
1: is concerned? The first Part of phase one is not about studying a certain disease. So in the beginning of phase one, these are normal, healthy people who don't have the illness because it's really about safety. Okay. Later, sometimes nowadays in particular, more and more we're seeing later in phase one, they'll do something called phase one in a special population. Or in a patient population either way and so at that point then you might take someone with say a known history of depression or even who's currently depressed but reasonably stable and you may then do this kind of studying there but again you're not looking at efficacy at all in phase one you're really not phase one is all about safety and pharmacokinetics well now assuming you know of course that no one has died or nothing bad has happened no bad findings then we move into phase two Phase two is now pilot studies and here now for the first time, you're going to be looking at a patient with a certain condition and you're looking for a signal of efficacy. You're not necessarily looking to prove that the drug works here. You're looking for some evidence or a signal that there is something good happening and you're continuing, of course, to gather safety and pharmacokinetic information. You may start exploring your dose range um, and that kind of thing.
0: This goes on in people, and then eventually it evolves into what is known as phase three.
1: Right. Now, now phase two sometimes gets divided into what they call phase two A and two B, and this is a little bit of an artificial distinction, but sometimes they'll do a very preliminary study with just a handful of people, and then they may move into a study, a pilot study with a couple hundred people. But then once you get through that, and, and there's actually one other thing, Abby, we should go back. I, one thing I forgot to mention is, When you're making that transition from preclinical into the phase one or clinical, the drug company needs to file something called an IND. This is an investigational new drug application. So you file this with the FDA saying, we have a potential drug here that we want to study in human beings. So everything that's then done is done under that IND application. And the reason I mentioned that is because now we decide, okay, this looks like it might be a real drug now. It may work. It may be safe. You move into phase three. These are the large, multi-center, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. These are often called registration studies or pivotal studies because those are the ones that are then collected and submitted to the FDA. Now, if you do a phase three program and the studies look good, Now you submit to the FDA, but you also submit a second application called an NDA or a new drug application, and this is your application for the FDA to approve you to market and sell the medication.
0: Phase 3 studies can be rather large.
1: They almost need to be rather large, yeah. In order to get a drug FDA approved for psychiatry and for many other indications in the United States, you need to have at least two different studies that are both positive. And by positive, in the United States, you have to be statistically better than placebo. And it's interesting, Abby, that we're the only country in the world that uses placebos. Every other country in the world would study one drug versus another gold standard established drug. And as long as the new drug is as good as or better than that drug, That's called a non-inferiority design because you're not inferior to the other drug. That's how you get approved. Whereas in the U.S., we have to show statistical superiority over placebo. And to do that, sometimes it does take large numbers to overcome the possibility of a random difference or a random finding.
0: And this is something that you and I will be talking about in a subsequent interview as to how this is done, how the radiant scales are used, and how we try as hard as we can to be valid and reliable and accurate in what we're measuring. It can be very complicated.
1: Psychiatry, in particular, you're right. We don't have a blood test or an X-ray, if you will. Um, We have to use psychometric rating scales. It, It is there is a little more subjectivity, I would agree. The other thing that's important to mention again is that you're also continuing to collect safety information because there may have only been a few hundred people exposed to the medication, and only a handful who may have had the particular condition. A good example is in schizophrenia research. We know that patients with schizophrenia are very different in how they respond to and metabolize medications. So you need to collect a bigger sample of patients, particularly with schizophrenia. This is also true for bipolar disorder as well.
0: With all of this then, obviously people are being exposed to things that by certainly by phase three are not considered particularly dangerous. We've already ruled that out. But how is research monitored to make sure that it is safe and always on the up and up? What's the process that goes parallel to the actual giving the patient a
1: drug? Well, there's a very elaborate FDA regulatory process, if you will. There are a number of different, actually, United States laws that relate to studying medications and doing testing in human beings. Collectively, this is referred to as GCPs or good clinical practices and literally within the GCPs are included United States law and it's actually termed CFR or Code of Federal Regulations and there are certain sections of the Code of Federal Regulations that apply to this. And there are very specific guidelines that we need to follow and ways that we do things has to be done very precisely. And then we are monitored, and there there also uh, are some protections put in place for people who may want to join a clinical trial. There's got to be an independent ethics committee or review board that reviews the protocol, which is the proposed plan of the study. They review any kind of informed consent forms that are used and any materials that may be recruiting materials that may be put in front of a potential patient. And they're doing all this to protect the rights and the welfare of a patient who might want to do a study. Also, the FDA itself can come out and visit sites and they often perform inspections of sites and they're very thorough in those inspections. If there are findings, you can even be either given a warning or you may even be prevented from doing future trials.
0: Is this one of the reasons why research is so expensive?
1: Well, it's interesting that I always joke if aspirin or penicillin were being developed today, they would never make it to the market. because the bar keeps getting set higher and higher and there are so many more regulations to follow. As a matter of fact, the cost of bringing a drug to market has increased logarithmically because of all of the different tests you now have to perform. On average right now, to get a drug from the test tube to the marketplace costs $1 billion. That's a billion with a B. And so this is part of the reason. Now, another part of the reason is that there are many failures along the way. And so it takes a huge investment to put enough drugs through the pipeline, if you will, to get one to go all the way through.
0: One of the things I think that people might not also appreciate that sometimes a development is not really to look at a new molecule per se, but perhaps at the delivery system, how the drug is put into the body. And a lot of the old molecules were known. We know their efficacy, but there were problems. And so they are looking at new release mechanisms, put it into a patch form, and, and things like this, put it under the tongue. It's it's a fascinating very broad endeavor to get a medication into somebody in in a safe manner.
1: Sure, I'd say this is an area a very active area of research. Um, I kind of joke sometimes it's like an old wine in a new bottle. You know, you find these older established medicines and put them into an extended release or as you mentioned a patch or some other kind of delivery mechanism and you know the bottom line is that you want to try to find a medication that has some advantage either in, in efficacy or safety or in ease of use. So if you take a medicine that used to be a three times a day medicine and now it becomes once a day even though it's the same chemical or molecule that's a big advance i would say
0: it's a huge advance the compliance issue is always problematic
1: sure the medicines don't work well if we don't take them
0: what about phase four that next stage to the research what is phase four all about
1: once the medication gets the fda approval to be marketed so the new drug application is granted if you will Then any further testing that's done once the drug is marketed is called phase 4 and these are often called post-marketing studies. A very important thing that's happened recently is that the FDA, as I mentioned, has been raising the bar and it's very important quickly to review the Vioxx story. You may know Vioxx was a medication that was a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that was approved and prior to Vioxx, we used to get medications approved based on shorter term studies with the understanding that once the medication was on the market, we would collect, we would do post-marketing surveillance and collect safety information. But sadly, after about two or three years, it was seen that there was a slight increase in cardiovascular risk with Vioxx and it was withdrawn from the market. So the FDA now requires companies to do a lot of the longer-term testing before the drug gets to market. And this has added time to the development process and cost. Now also what will happen is when the FDA grants approval, frequently they will attach to it what's called a post-approval commitment, And they will require a drug company to do certain kinds of studies within a certain time frame after a drug's approved in order to maintain that approval.
0: Sometimes after a drug's been on the market for a while and doctors use it in different disease entities because it makes sense to them scientifically to try it or clinically they have the need to try things in treatment difficult cases, it becomes evident that a drug that was approved for one thing may actually have a benefit for something else. One exactly. of the things very common of late is how many of the antipsychotic medications are now found to be useful in anxiety disorders and depressions. Does that throw it back to a phase three? How does that get re-reviewed?
1: Right. If a medi- an existing medication wants to be studied for a new indication, it doesn't have to go all the way back to phase one, obviously, because it's the same molecule and it's been shown to be safe. So you don't necessarily have to do phase two either. You can go straight back into phase three, as you said, but You do need to do pre-marketing testing, of course, because now you're trying to show that the drug works for a new indication, and you still have to gather now safety information because it's being used in a different patient population who may have different vulnerabilities or different risks.
0: And even the dosing may be different in different patient populations or with different conditions.
1: Very, very true, and the atypical antipsychotics are a good example of that. We use generally higher doses for schizophrenia, and lower doses in a depression state, for instance, or a bipolar depression
0: state. So this is an ongoing, ever-intriguing process that keeps all of us very busy and keeps us close to our our reading material.
1: It does. And one final thing I would say is that clinicians need to understand when they see the results of these studies, these studies are being done for one specific purpose and that's to get the drug FDA approved. So they may not mirror the, the clinical practice. And I always say these studies aren't necessarily done to improve clinical practice. They're done to get the drug approved. And Hopefully that'll help people when they're interpreting these kinds of trials.
0: And it's very true because after a drug has been on the market for two, three, four years, the real-life clinical experience may show that it has other uses or perhaps is being used in a manner that was not directly studied.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. I I, um, I very frequently say that I do the kind of research that gets a drug on the market and then, then the real research begins when clinicians get their hands on it and they figure it out.
0: Interesting. Andrew Cutler is a psychiatrist and the CEO and medical director of the Florida Clinical Research Center. He has done a countless number of clinical studies over the course of the years, and his experience and his expertise and his observations are certainly worthy of our time. He has agreed, and we thank him in advance, to come back in the future so we can look at some of the rating scales and how they more precisely look at whether a drug is effective, not effective, how it's used in one parameter and not another parameter. It's going to be an interesting second interview, and I'm looking forward to that. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to talking to you again.